You're listening to the ConsumerFi Podcast, powered by Norbridge, loan software that accelerates change. Everybody, welcome to the pod today. I'm excited to have uh, an old friend in crime, uh, compliance crime that would be uh, with us here today, uh, Steve Levine. Steve is the Chief Legal Officer with Ignite Consulting. Steve, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. And Steve is joining us from uh, from Dallas, Fort Worth. He was telling me, Steve, you know, for for COVID and everything, you've been you've been you've been able to make it into the office for for a good duration here. Yeah, for about the first four months, uh, we were working from home like everybody else, and then towards the end of the summer, started coming in. And there's not a lot of people downtown, so so I feel like I'm being somewhat safe, uh, but still getting to be efficient and coming in the office. I actually traveled a lot in January, and that's the first time I've traveled since the whole thing began, and and that was a unique experience. Steve, tell tell the folks who who may not know just a little bit about your background, and then. Um, maybe a little bit about the company background with Ignite um, so that they, I, I want to make sure people know the great value that, that you and your team deliver. Sure. Uh, so I've been a consumer finance lawyer for about 30 years. I have been in-house. I have had my own practice. Uh, I've done it uh, several different ways. Spent about the first 10 years of my career litigating and, and trying cases. And uh, a lot of them were car finance cases. And then kind of one day I had that epiphany and said, I wish I could stop my clients from getting sued and kind of made the jump to compliance before compliance was a buzzword and fashionable. Uh, you know, just started to teach best practices and some techniques and kind of layer in some training and uh, just been lucky enough in my career to uh, really be able to have an impact and, and stop people from getting sued. Uh, my company is Ignite Consulting Partners. And we started this uh, about four years ago because we thought there was a big need in, in consumer finance. Uh, there's a lot of great law firms that do consumer finance, uh, but but a lot of times that the companies don't know what to do with the information that the law firms are giving them. So we kind of combine uh, the, the legal and compliance knowledge with a lot of uh, implementation background. Uh, several of the people here have worked uh, in-house in for companies that they've been on the front line they know where the sticking points are, and they know how to take the information and, and get the companies to act on it uh, to protect their business. That's great. It, so, Steve, you and I were talking, and and in terms of kind of what we wanted to get into today, um, we're, we, we, we agree that there's a new wave of regulation coming that's being spawned by a couple of different factors. One, obviously, the change in in administration uh, that comes along with uh, the immediate departure of the head of the CFPB. And so that was agreed to. We have that. We have state-based regulation as well, right? That's been uh, further emboldened by, I think, a lot of the social factors. And with the pandemic, I think some regulators have seen some opportunities to take a stronger stand, whether that works for them well or not. Um, I'll let the people decide. But uh, there's also obviously when you have that kind of wave of change, what comes next is a lot of these uh, uh, litigation attorneys that are looking for opportunities to expose these uh, cracks 
in the foundation and try to find a way in. And that's kind of where you guys come in is, is to, is to help with that. Um, but you know, to start from, from, uh, let, let's start with, let's just start with the CFPB and the, and the, and the regulators, or even at the state level, Steve, you know, what are you seeing? How are you kind of interpreting things? I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bearish, I would say, based off what I've heard and seen so far, but I'm we haven't met bearish. the new director. Yeah, we haven't met the new director. We saw what the interim guy did. I don't know, you know, how long that guy's going to be in place or if they approve this guy. What do you think? So, so here's the thing. Uh, he, he hasn't been uh, approved yet. It hasn't been confirmed by uh, the Senate. And the gentleman's uh, name is Chopra. Uh, Chopra, Rohit Chopra. Yes. So, so we, we actually know a lot about him uh, because he was at the CFPB before. Uh, he was very active in, in the student lending division. Uh, he is not an attorney. I, I believe he, he's a Wharton MBA. You're right. Uh, he, he from, from what I hear, is very aggressive, uh, very uh, enamored with, with uh, metrics and, and, and understanding uh, that the numbers involved. If you read his dissents, uh, he, he's been on the Federal Trade Commission uh, for, for several years now. And, and if you read his dissents, uh, you know, one of his big issues at the FTC was, and, and of course, that, that has been uh, under Republican control three to two. So, so he's been writing a lot of dissents where the majority found uh, corporate wrongdoing, uh, but didn't attach what he thought was a significant enough monetary penalty. Uh, and, and, and I encourage anybody that really wants to understand where he's, where he's coming from, read some of those dissents and, and you kind of see his economic analysis and, and his belief that, that, that it is the financial penalties uh, that, that has to be placed with wrongful conduct. So, so you know, number one, I, I think we have that. Uh, I think that Elizabeth Warren, uh, who, who hired him for the CFPB, uh, is a big proponent of his. I think she has a lot of clout right now in the Biden administration. Uh, and in, in the Senate. And a lot of what she's been focusing on the past couple of years, and, and not just consumer finance, but 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 just you know banking and, and finance in general, but but she is, is going to uh, be very active. You know, right now I think there there's a push to really take a look at the way that consumers have been treated uh, during this crisis. And you know, look at how accounts have been collected, look at how they've been serviced, look at the actions companies have taken. And, and I think that's going to be a big early push uh, of, of the CFPB and, and also Senator Warren, uh, Congressman Waters, uh, head of the House Financial Services Committee. So mm -hmm. you have that. You know, you also have, let, let's not forget, you have Kamala Harris as vice president, who was a pretty strong consumer proponent when she was attorney general of California. Uh, so, so, you know, she's no slouch in that department. Uh, she, she brings a lot to the table, too. You have a movement that's been going on across the country for the past several years uh, where there's been many CFPBs uh, being created, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, a couple other places. The notable one in the last six months has been California. Right. Uh, and, and those have been uh, facilitated to some degree by, by former director Cordray. Uh, he, he basically came in and, and helped uh, build some of those uh, agencies and and a lot of the zealous consumer advocates that were with the CFPB under Cordray, when the leadership changed, they went and took similar positions at those state agencies. So, so 
you you have a, almost a, a perfect storm where there's been a lot of uh, circumstances. It's it's like pre-infiltrating, knowing mm-hmm. that that uh, well, not knowing, but maybe turning the tides in a way. You know, uh, potential director Chopra, I'll call him. You mentioned that his dissents were calling out that he liked to see these bigger penalties. And this is something we saw with Cordray as well, where the penalties were massive. And there was this uh, enforcement through regulation or regulation through enforcement. Regulation, that's right. Well, tell, not to get too philosophical on this, but why do? what is the moral ground that one stands on to say that these financial penalties need to be massive? Because... I, as a consumer, I put on my consumer hat and I say, okay, you got $2 billion from a very large banking institution. I know you have people that you feel need to be remunerated. Are you guys actually distributing that money? Is that going, like, is that why? Because from all I see as a consumer, I see these massive penalties. Consumers don't really seem to be taking any steps forward during that kind of uh, philosophy, right? Um, I think it actually creates more tension, but- like, I, I need to understand, like, am I out of step? Like, what is the philosophical reason why these penalties need to be big? So I, I think, number one, it's to punish the wrongdoing and, and it's create a, a deterrent effect for the entire industry. So, for instance, uh, last year, a couple of years ago, Santander got hit by the CFPB uh, with, with having to do with the way that they were uh, collecting and servicing uh, military accounts and, and they, they happened to have repossessed a lot of vehicles they shouldn't have by law. Uh, those affected military members, consumers, uh, did get remediation. Uh, and, and, and a lot of what the CFPB did under Cordray, that there was remuneration uh, to the individual consumer. And, and you see that at a state level too, to, gotcha. to where uh, that they push that remediation. But, but bigger than the individual consumer, uh, it, it's really a theory that, that we've got to stop the conduct. And how do, how do you stop the conduct? Uh, you, you make it so unappealing to them from a, a business point of view that they have to stop. Uh, let, let me share a quick story. So, so yeah. a couple of years ago, that there, there is a, a committee on the state bar of Texas. It, it, it's the, the basically uh, consumer uh, committee. Okay. And, and it's mostly made up of plaintiffs, lawyers, you know, people that sue creditors. Okay. And, and to try to balance it out and make it a little bit more fair, they invite a couple of industry attorneys to sit on this committee. And, and I got to sit on the committee for a while. And, and, and it was really interesting to me to sit in the room with those folks. Uh, they are truly consumer zealots. Uh, I'm not going to say advocates, I'm going to say zealots. That they honestly believe, as does Elizabeth Warren, by the way, uh, that that profits are are inherently evil, and that if you're putting dollars in a company's pocket, you're necessarily taking dollars out of a consumer's pocket. And and you know, I, I would bring up all the challenges that businesses have to run the the, the you know the the risk losses, uh, the operational issues, you know, just all the expenses, and and not all companies make a ton of money. Uh, some companies just barely get by and some companies well, get out of business, well, but right. they don't understand that. And they, well, they do not want to listen to that. So, so military lending is, is important. I, I think if you, if you want to do it, you should do it right. Absolutely. Seen, and, seen, and, and that's been disturbing because right. there have been military lenders that, that have been hit by the, the CFPB for not doing well, it right. This is what I'm saying. Again, you have a philosophical break here where these, the, the, the contingent you're talking about believes that profits are inherently evil 
And, and that is the driver for, for bad actors. But you have USAA that got in trouble for, for doing some, some things wrong with their military contingent as well. As far as I check, they're, they're a member organization. They're not driven by profit. So what would be the motive for them to, yeah. to it, it, there's no profit motive. So I, I, I kind of break these, it's like, I, I break it down that way, but I, I do agree that there's, if there are probably some bad actors, probably on the, I would call them in the smaller, smaller market sizes, right? Like smaller regional players that would be happy to just stay under the radar mm-hmm. and not get caught and, and basically think, well, we're so small, we can just do whatever, right? Just riding dirty. These are the bad actors that I think we'd all agree need to clean up their act. If you want to play, you got to play by the rules. Um, but you know, to, to, to broad brush stroke everybody in that in that same vein, I've I've worked with a great many people, and that's the thing. I think it's a it's a good voice that you bring because I've worked with a great many people who also share that consumer passion. They just happen to work from within. Look, I'm a consumer too. Uh, my, my family are consumers. You know, we have friends who are consumers. Uh, I, I am not anti-consumer. Uh, I, I just think it, at some point, the, the, the regulators uh, and, and really the legislatures ha- have to take a look at what they're doing now. I've been doing this 30 years and I learn new things all the time. Yeah. I mean, on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis. This is a complicated business. And, and look, a lot of times those, those big companies, they have huge legal departments, huge compliance departments. And they still run afoul of the law because the yeah. laws are complicated, and and you're asking for individuals to enforce them, uh, and and individuals are making decisions on a regular basis, and and then those decisions, you know, but become their process, yeah. uh, and and it's not an intentional thing. It, it, it's just a lot of times people don't understand all the rules. Yeah. Yeah, that's why it's one of the things that that. Uh, we believe in at Ignite is we try to tell you what the rules are. We try to train your people and and we kind of build in. We inherently know that we'll do training and we know within a couple of months, there's going to be some backsliding. So, so then we, we do a little bit of audit and then we do some more training. Yeah. Because we want to see what message took, what message didn't take. And, and I think that's a really good way to do it because, you know, Look, I don't want to cast aspersions, but but I think a lot of people are in love with the efficiency of online training where, oh, there's a little test at the end and you, and you check off you know, five questions and, and, and you pass a test. Uh, and, and those tests are designed to be passed. Uh, they're designed not, not, not to challenge. Uh, and, and people aren't really getting an education that they need. Uh, so so I, I really like uh, talking to people having them ask questions, telling me about their challenges, the situations that they see. And, and we kind of, we let them build the training. Yeah. When I, when I've, I've sat in on some national automotive finance association, kind of uh, compliance working groups, regional working groups, we're never short on conversation. We always go the full limit. Nobody's ever hurrying to get out to a meeting or get back home. Um, it's, it's fruitful conversation and it's actionable. Hey, I have this particular issue with my loan package. Somebody told me that this doesn't really fly. What do you guys think? You'll get some honest answers. It's it's not uh, it's not anything you shouldn't be talking about in a competitive environment. I mean, the, right? This is about everybody getting together and making sure yeah. that we understand the rules. I'm the I'm, rules I'm a huge believer in that. So, <laughs> so at, at Ignite, we put on our own auto finance compliance conference every May, and and one of the reasons that we do that 
you know, we, we provide a lot of education, great speakers, everything like that. But one of the big values, I think, are various compliance people getting together, meeting uh, partners in, in, in arms, uh, developing their own network of people that they could call when they have questions. Because yes. you know, let's face it, a lot yes. of times you don't want to call the lawyer. You don't want to uh, call uh, compliance people. You, you want to call somebody else that deals with your same issues on a day-to-day basis and have a frank conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I did that quite a lot, actually. And not just within compliance, I would do it within IT. Um, I would find people interesting or or I found them to be innovative or knowledgeable. They kind of possess these qualities that I I, I found desirable. And I, I made a conscious effort to cultivate relationships, but I knew that it was a give and take, right? You know, you can't just keep calling the same compliance guy for for free information. You got to You got to kind of it's a relation. It's a it's a big relationship thing, and that's that's always fun. But talking about when relationships aren't really there would be on the litigation side, Steve. So when we think about, <clears throat> we've got we're setting up this picture. We're painting a picture for everybody right now. We've got the changes at the CFPB already in motion. We've got things happening at the state level prior to that. So we have basically a revisiting of of Cordray's uh, people. If not, if not his complete philosophy and regime, um, on the litigation side, what have you been seeing? You know, pre-COVID, during the the, the Trump administration, uh, maybe even during, and then and then, what are you forecasting is going to come forward in terms of that kind of activity? So, so let me go back in time a little <laughs> bit to answer your question. So, so the CFPB put out. Uh, auto finance uh, bulletin in, in 2012. Yep. And, and it basically kind of gave the, the standard for best practices in, in, in the industry, you know, their perception of best practices and, and the way the industry should be operating. There were a lot of plaintiffs lawyers around the country that took that and, and that became the basis of their legal theories. Yeah. And, and, you know, with a lot of our smaller clients, I don't worry about the CFPB walking the door, not going to happen. I worry about the local lawyers in their county, in their town that sue creditors all the time. And, you know, with that guidance, uh, a lot of people got educated as to, hey, uh, this, this is the way companies should be run. I'll give you a good example. Uh, so it used to be that you know, car dealers, finance companies uh, got sued all the time because of repossession has gone bad. And there was pretty much a, a, a formula as to how those cases were going to be brought and how those cases were going to be defended. Mm-hmm. Then the CFPB came in with their guidance and talked about vendor management. And all of a sudden, those cases became a lot harder to settle. They came, became a lot more expensive because the lawyers started harping on, well, do you have a contract with this vendor? What was your due diligence? What standards are you holding them to? You know, basically gave them a laundry list of questions that they need to be asking. Those cases became a lot more powerful. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of that again. And, and let me couple that with, so the virus hits and the plaintiff's lawyers around the country uh, that, that practice in consumer law uh, really have not been filing a lot of cases in the past year. Uh, the courts got backlogged. A lot of uh, courts were under stay-at-home orders. Uh, the judges uh, ordered their staffs home for, for an amount of time. And when they came back, there was this huge backlog. Yep. So like I was talking to, to a, a plaintiff's lawyer uh, in, in my building a couple of weeks ago, uh, he was telling me that, that he didn't file a case for eight months. I believe it. So wait, hold on. Are all are 
Would you say a preponderance of these cases are all taken on contingency? Uh, I wouldn't say well, I wouldn't say a preponderance. No, it, it really depends. In, in my career, I defended a lot of cases that were taken on contingency, but I'd say just as many. Uh, maybe maybe the, the customer was able to, to pay a little bit up front. Mm. Uh, maybe they were getting help from uh, a legal aid association or someplace else. So, so a lot, but not all. Yeah, I, I can imagine during COVID, it would be very difficult to get um, a good jury if it was a jury situation. Well, forget about a good jur- jury. You're, you're not going to get to court. You're, yeah. You're, they are so, they've been so backlogged. You know, because they had to invent a new way of doing business on the fly. You know, basically uh, Zoom hearings and, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you know, a lot of really good trial lawyers, uh, they want to be in front of the jury. They don't want to be in front of a screen. Yeah. But they yeah. actually want to be in front of the jury. So, so like this one attorney was telling me, he's starting to file the best cases that he's accumulated over the uh, past eight months. He's starting to file them now because he feels like, by the time he gets through the initial discovery process, the courts are going to be opening up more. There's going to be live proceedings, and and he, you know he thinks this is the good time. And mm-hmm. and that varies by state and county. Uh, some places are, are more backlogged than others. My point is, so you've got the, this class of attorneys that that just are are pent up, and and they've got to make revenue too, and then they've got to run their practices, uh, and they haven't been able to to really do that effectively for the past year. So you have that coming at the same time that you have all this regulation and, and all this energy about consumer protection. So I think there, there's going to be a lot of energy uh, out there and, and it's going to be incumbent upon the industry to keep up with all of that. Yeah. The So I feel like we've, we've if we haven't already put the fear into people, you know, um, please rewind and listen again. Uh, <laughs> We're, we're kind of bearish. And I don't mean to put the fear into people. I'm, I'm, I'm just reading the tea leaves like it is. No, I, I, I think we have to be very frank about these things. And it's better to be honest and hug the monster. We've got a situation. Now it's the meat of, of the conversation that I really wanted to get to, Steve. So I'm, I'm a, a, a lender uh, or you know, a sizable dealership or you know, somebody with some market presence or, or not, right? I'm just... I'm hearing all this and I'm saying, okay, good Lord, where do I start to get so, prepared to make sure that I'm safe? I think there's a couple of places where you have to start. Uh, my observation over the past several years is that people got a little soft on compliance. Uh, maybe they repurposed some personnel. Uh, maybe they put some business issues ahead of compliance. Now's the time to turn the attention back on compliance. Uh, I think you need to look at your written policies and procedures and, and make sure they actually match what your business is doing. And I don't say that lightly because a lot of businesses have changed the way they were doing business because of the virus. Uh, remote workforces, uh, reductions in staff, uh, change in job descriptions. So, so I think you have to get that all into gear and make sure that that all aligns. Uh, then I think you really need to have a demonstrable training program Take a look at your company. Take a look at the riskiest uh, aspects of what you do and, and develop a training uh, content around it. If I am a small lender or, or dealer, uh, I want to have all my documents looked at, all my origination documents, all my collection letters, 
you know, everything that the customer sees, I want to have that looked at. If I'm a bigger company, uh, I can't stress enough how important I think it is for even medium-sized companies, larger companies to do risk assessments. And a risk assessment sounds scary. It doesn't have to be. Basically, you're looking at the various functions of your business and, and you're trying to identify where you have risk and then what controls you have in place to protect yourself from that risk. And I think that is a great exercise for company to go through. Yeah, uh, you don't have to do it all in, in a month or two. You can decide to spread it out, you know, over the year. But I think you really need to take that look into your business and, and understand your business from that risk perspective, and then do something about it. You know, for for that one, I have a, a particular passion. I want to tell a story. So when I had my auto finance company we got to the point where we were really putting down the pedal to the metal and and starting to originate more. And we were accumulating a portfolio with some trajectory. And we knew that we wanted to be on the front foot relative to compliance. And so I actually engaged an audit, you know, a a group that does uh, compliance and financial. I mean, I think about doing a financial audit, right? You have to be a company that has a certain level of sophistication in order to go from, you know, uh, just a review to an audit. It's very costly. And it can be frustrating because you have people pointing out things that you just don't feel from a risk assessment standpoint are really worth your time to, to improve a control. You may say, I'm going to accept this risk, right? But the fact that you go through this exercise to look at the controls, it's just such a great exercise because you're going to end up exposing your system of record. Your system of record ha- is a great place to apply controls or to apply automation to a lot of these things. You've got um, your, your, how your people interact with that system, what type of information are they available to see? Uh, is there any exposure there that they could do some kind of financial crime, right? There's all these things you can do. And that kind of view is super helpful when you describe, there's kind of the formula that, that a lot of people, when your process, compliance, plan, do, check, act, something, some kind of rotation like that, like, you know, um, so I, I, I can't, I can't emphasize enough how much I think the value of doing an audit there, because if you structure it right, you could phase it where you have the review of your current, uh, policies and procedures. Invariably, they're going to request certain documents. Do you have a fair lending policy? Do you have a TCPA policy? Do you have any of these? And you may say, well, I I mean, we try to comply with these things, but I don't know that we really have anything written down. Well, okay. Warning signs right there. Let's, let's get something written down, but then are you actually executing on it with people, with, with, with technology? Where do those things come together? And then to go back and check and you do the training and you have this, this life cycle. And And I don't think you have, I don't think you have to do it every year. I mean, you need to look at, Hey, what things changed between the last snapshot and now? Did we have a lot of employee turnover? Did we have a change in systems and process? You name it. Um, that's that's kind of what I've seen. But I also realize that for the really really small guys, that may not be doable. So if you for the for the really really small guys, Steve, the folks that say, you know what, I, it's like I, I'm doing all the underwriting and my partner's doing all the collections. Mm-hmm. We're really small. We're a startup. What would you what would you say to somebody like that um, if they wanted to make sure that they're starting off and growing right right 
with the right kind of policies, but right sized. Well, it's still you know you're you're taking the risk assessment and 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 you're crystallizing it to that smaller company. But mm. but you're still asking the same type of questions. You know, if if I do a risk assessment at a larger company, I may, may wind up talking to forty different people throughout that company about various things. Uh, if I'm dealing with with a smaller shop, I may only talk to three or four people. Right. Uh, so 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 it's much. Uh, scale down, but but you're still asking the same kind of questions, and you're still mm-hmm. getting the same. But it still comes down to what factors are creating risk, and what controls do you have in place to manage those factors. For instance, uh, I, I was working with a, a company recently, and I mean they only have a couple of thousand accounts. It's, it's a smaller, uh, it, it's a buy here pay here dealer and related finance company, and yeah, you know, I want to say in, in in 15 hours. We did a pretty stout risk assessment, you know, for a company that size, and, and made a lot of progress to tightening them up. So, so it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a hundred, two hundred hour project. You know, somebody that size, it didn't take a whole lot for us to ask the crucial questions, interview folks, look at the documentation, and you know, give them a write up which basically lays out the year ahead of them. Here's how you're going to tighten up. Yeah, and that is exactly what I did. So, I would get my audit report. And there would be like, you know, uh, red, these things got to change. Yellow, hey, caution yep. here. And exactly. then green is, these are aspirational. You know, you guys decide what you want to do. And that's actually where most of the, the the dialogue and back and forth went when I was arguing with the auditors in, in a constructive way, saying, hey, I have a difference of opinion on things. Um, but I used that as my template. And so each month when I did my management review, I would show we had these 10 things listed. We knocked off this one or this two. And I'm working on this third one, and this will be done in the next two months. You know, it's a little longer in duration, but it was a great way to continue that plan, do, check, act. And I would, I would find it really hard to believe that if a regulator saw that this type of discipline had been laid down, to question my intention. I mean, that is not just a that is not just a hey, I bought, I've got a buddy who has a bunch of compliance materials and right. policies and procedures, and I just I took him out to dinner and he gave me the PDFs. Right. I mean that that's that's a joke, right? Yeah, that's so important what you just said. It, it, <laughs> that demonstrable compliance, and and I always tell people, and I go back to my my days uh, doing litigation, doing defense work. You, you've got to give me the ability to tell a story. What am I going to tell the judge or the jury or the regulator? You know, am I going to be able to show them your training materials? Am I going to be, be able to show them your schedule, your your documentation, all the things that you're doing to try to do business the right way? Uh, if I could show them that, that then I could argue that that whatever happened, it, it was the result of a misunderstanding, and and you know there shouldn't be punitive damages, that there shouldn't be uh, a, a big number attached to that conduct. Mm-hmm. If I've got nothing, and and the plaintiff is just wailing away, you know you have you haven't invested in compliance, you don't have anything in writing, you don't do any trick. Yeah, you know, it, it just sets that a uh, plaintiff's lawyer up to go on a roll and he's playing the lottery at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And fortunately for me, I, I've not had to spend too much time in lit um, uh, at all. Uh, you're, you're a lucky I, man. Well, you apply, you try to, you, I mean, this is what we're, this is what a lot of us in compliance have to sell internally is pay me now or pay me later, but either way you're going to pay me, you might as well just pay me now and not look like a, like a jabroni and, and, and show up poor in court, you know, like these things are painful, you know, you never really see 
the leadership or the board gets quite so pissed off when all the dirty laundry is exposed and you've been telling a month in a month out that everything's great. Well, if you want to, bring I, a, I, if I, if I like want, a better insurance policy than that. You know, it, it, I, I, yeah. I'd rather hedge yeah. that bet. If, if you want to bring a, a company's progress to a grinding halt, uh, get them tied up in litigation to where people are having yeah. to take time off to do depositions and prepare depositions, meet with the lawyers, uh, produce reams of documents. You know, it's really hard to be an efficient run company when you're spending a lot of time doing it. Yeah. Most companies don't have the resources to dedicate to that. Yeah. Well, Steve, I, I think it's I think it's great to keep an eye on the forecast as to what's coming. Um, thanks for sharing your perspective. And, you know, to bring it together with with the preparation side, you know, I'm just going to echo what you said. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have the last word to make sure that I don't butcher this. But, you know, look at your, you know, there's the three steps that you laid out I really like. So the first one has to do with taking an inventory of what you have, looking at your policies and procedures, uh, everything that impacts the employee and the customer, you know, so uh, things that kind of cover both of those. Number two would be training, some kind of training program that to me also infers there's some there's some auditing, right? You're kind of taking a peek at stuff and then you have a, a bit of a document or policy review. And you mentioned a risk assessment, you know, and that 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 may be kind of the overarching um, kind of kind of uh, thing where you, you kind of initially take that that audit based look to say, where is uh, where's the heat? Where do we really want to start and focus? Um, I'll let you have the last word on on, on getting prepared there. Yeah, no, I think you, you laid it out great. You, you take those steps. I don't care whether you're a big company uh, or, or a small company. The conversation is pretty much the same. You know, the, the levels of depth that we have to go into change, but, but the conversation is pretty much the same. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to identify the, those risk weaknesses that you have. And, and you're trying to recognize how do I build strong controls? And, and, and a lot of your controls have to do with your people giving them the knowledge, uh, making them understand the, the role that they play in protecting your business. Mm -hmm. and, and I think if you do those things, then, then you're setting yourself up nicely. Uh, the next several years are going to be challenging. There's going to be some really scary headlines. Uh, you're going to be more active CFPB, FTC, uh, the state agencies. We, we know that's coming, but you don't have to lose sleep about it if you're taking care of your house, if you're doing the type of things that we've talked about. Uh, that then you're you're going to be able to feel pretty good that you're going to be able to get through it because you're taking those demonstrable steps. I think if people take one thing away from the from the pod, and I know I said it, let you have the last word, and I'm going to let you do it. But you, you said something that really that really kind of uh, struck me, and it was, um, oh God. And then I I do I do that thing to try to be nice, and then I and then I, I my brain my brain gets all locked up. Um, no, but I, I do think I do think compliance is is an important feature and work on it now. Um, the worst is well. Here's what I was. I, it, it just came to me. I can derive fear from a couple of different places. If I'm deriving fear from a reality point of view that I know that my policies and procedures are not right, I know that we're doing things incorrectly. That's far different than just having fear about not knowing the state of affairs and whether you would fare well within some kind of an audit or a regulator looking at you. That type of fear to me is, 
ridiculous. Like you got to get that fear of the unknown out of the way and just deal with the realities. Um, and I think that's going to help a lot of people to make sure that as they move into these, these more bearish times that they're, that they're well situated. Yeah. I encourage everybody, you know, don't wait. Uh, I hear a lot about, you know, we're going to get to it next quarter and, and then next year. Don't wait. Take, take a look at all this stuff. See what you have to do. Come up with a, a reasonable plan based on your resources, uh, a reasonable plan to accomplish some things, you know, this year so that you're in a better position. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, people got lax the last couple of years uh, and, and now it's time to tighten up. And, and protect your business. You know, everybody that's listening to this has a business that they value that they want to protect. You know, jobs depend on protecting that business. Uh, so you've got to do the right thing and take those steps. If you do that, you'll be fine. Yeah. Well, folks, this has been Steve from Ignite Consulting. Steve, if if folks want to get a hold of you and the team, maybe they want to uh, uh, kick around some ideas. What's the best way for folks to get a hold of you? Uh, just shoot an email to. Info at ignitecp.com uh, or go to our website, uh, website ignitecp.com. We do monthly training webinars uh, that they're free. Uh, just shoot us an email and, and we get you on that list. Like I mentioned, we've got a auto finance compliance conference in May that, that if uh, you practice compliance in that area that you really want to attend. Uh, we, we take the, the training and protecting of your businesses very seriously. So just reach out to us. Great. And, and I have to thank you guys. You guys have been fantastic uh, partners with the National Automotive Finance Association, particularly last year and in, in years prior. So so thanks for all that. Now we, we are huge believers in, in NAF and, and everything that it accomplishes. Outstanding. Well, folks, it's been great. Uh, St- Steve Levine, he's the Chief Legal Officer with Ignite Consulting. Thanks for having me. The Consumer Fi Podcast has been brought to you by Nortridge, loan software that accelerates change. We'd also like to thank the National Automotive Finance Association, the only trade association exclusively serving the non-prime auto financing industry.